You are all weirdos. Weird science is the revolution. Weird science is the revolution. Welcome all you mutants, Krakoans, and substitute members of the five. It's time for another Weird Dose of X, your Weird Science X-Men podcast. A proud member of the Weird Science family of podcasts. I'm Jason, and here with me, with a strangely bedazzled forehead, is our pal Ruben. Ruben, how the heck are you today? Good. I've always been a sinister clone. <laughs> well, you sure? I thought that might just be like a chunk of protein puck that got stuck to your forehead. Could that be it? Will napkin take care of that? Yeah, one? yes. Protein puck. Oh, yes. <laughs> but all the cool podcasts are doing these days. E- yes. Strange insider humor that only you understand. That's fine. It, it, adds, it adds to the texture. We'll build, which world building, Ruben. World building. Okay. Uh, so, yes, we are back to our weekly podcast. Uh, not as weekly as some, more weekly than others. We have just one book to actually discuss in detail today, but it's a doozy. One of my favorites in a long time. It's Immortal X-Men number 10. I, I presume, I'm going to guess you kind of liked it too? <laughs> yeah, there is no doubt that I wasn't going to love this issue. And actually, in general, I am just... I don't know. I want to gush, but basically, I, I am totally on board with Kieran Gillen's kind of vision, seeing things all tied together and expand, and just yeah, it's great. We needed somebody to tell like a cohesive, driving force story, and it seems like he's taking the reins. I'm fine with it. Yeah, we're going to try to hold back the gushing a bit today, just because it could get out of hand. But it, it's a real good book. But before we get into that, uh, first a little bit of news. And then I'm going to catch everyone up on the goings-on in Dark Web, if you haven't been reading that, because a, a good chunk of that is done now. And then we'll head into our our, our book of the week, Immortal X-Men number 10. So, first, some news. Uh, we have a crossover called Weapon of Vengeance. We know that Ben Percy's X-Force series is currently in the midst of a crossover with Ben Percy's Wolverine series in the storyline called The Beast Agenda. Well, if you think that's nifty, you just wait. This summer, Ben Percy's Wolverine series is going to be crossing over with Ben Percy's Ghost Rider series for a story called, yes, Weapons of Vengeance. I'm sure you see where that title came from. Mm -hmm. So we'll get an alpha issue, then we'll have Ghost Rider number 17, then Wolverine number 36, and then an Omega issue. So not much of a crossover, but yeah, hey, it counts. So let's just hope that Ben Percy is able to collaborate effectively with uh, himself. <laughs> he's had some he's practice. He's 50-50. Yeah, he's 50-50 on that. Some he's, of it might he's not really, you know, line up sharing very well. the duties of uh, a plotting and characterization, everything. So I, I guess they like it when he does these things. And yeah, why not? I hope that, I, again, at least this one is going to be a short one. So we won't be dragging out whatever's happening as long as the Beast Agenda has. And that could be fun. I'm, I'm sure we'll at least talk about that a little when it comes out. And that starts in like August. I like Ghost Rider, but not necessarily his. I'm not reading it, but the character's cool. And so I'm I'm okay with seeing. It's taken a shift out. lately. For a while, there was a very monster of the month thing it, uh, where he'd go from town to town and he'd encounter some weird baddie. And then he would transform uncontrollably and the Ghost Rider would take care of it. And more recently, he teamed up with uh, this mystic government agent slash mole slash whatever slash lady who escaped from a hot topic and so it's a, a you know, it, it seems to be taking on more of a ongoing storyline so we'll see how that works i forget what her name is she has a very very silly name this sounds like a perfect character for me i would love it <laughs> Tal- talia war road I believe okay is her name. i'll have to look this character up afterwards <laughs> okay so that's that crossover uh next uh 
Dark Web. So it's not quite done yet, but the miniseries called X-Men Dark Web, maybe it was Dark Men, Dark, Dark Men X-Web, that could be it too, that has all those X, Dark Web, and Men mixed together in some order. It was a three-issue miniseries, and it's done. So some things came out of that that X-readers should know about. Now, one major impetus for all of this demons running around New York City silliness is that Madeline Pryor, she wanted those memories that Jean had of being with Madeline's actual son, Nathan, a.k.a. Cable, as Cable was growing up, right? Uh, Madeline gave birth to him, but Jean got to do, you know, learning to walk, when saying his first word, bringing him to the future for the first time, all those big firsts that all us parents you know, really yeah, sending want. him to the future yes. <laughs> to escape impending doom. Yeah. Yep. Everyone does that. So she really wanted those memories, which is very, very similar to something going on in the whole Ben Riley chasm thing with Peter, but that's even more complicated because of beyond nonsense. But that's that's Spider Man's. Uh so in X Men Dark Web, these two Jeans Gray end up having a big fight down in limbo and First, Jean shows that she's really easily able to win. She's clearly the best. And then Jean surrenders and says, okay, here, have a copy of those memories you wanted. You should have just asked. No big deal. So once again, this is another story that could have been resolved, didn't even need to exist if they had just had a 30-second conversation at the beginning. You just want a copy? Here. Boom. There you go. They're both psychics. Copying memories is, you know... Just another Tuesday for them. So there is one really nice Phil Noto page. She does the art here. It looks great, as always. Uh, it's, it's this wordless page that presents this montage of Scott and Gene with baby Nathan doing all these baby and parent things. And so it's, that's like the moment when those memories are transferred. And it, it looks really nice. It looks very sweet. Uh, one question I had was, did Nathan have that one glowy yellow eye right from birth? No. No? Okay, well. No. He does uh, now. He does now, but in this in this picture that Phil Noto made, he has the one glowy eye. So I don't know what that's about, but I thought it had developed later. But much later, makes, yeah, it makes it really clear in the pictures. Oh yeah, that's baby Cable, because otherwise, you know, all babies kind of look alike. But I'm pretty sure that's just a part of him being bionic, which he was not born bionic, right? Something to do with the future. Oh well, it looks cool. I'm, maybe there's some uh, some no prize explanation, or maybe there is a retcon that means that. Very, very early on it happened. I don't actually know. It just stuck out to me. Uh, so that's one big thing, that Madeline now has those memories, and she and Jean are pretty cool together. Another thing that happens is that Havoc decides to leave the X-Men team to hang out with Maddie. He says he's still an X-Man, but on my own terms. I don't know what that means. That means it'll never be referenced. Because the X-Men now <laughs> are this particular team, and he says he's not going to hang out with the team which I think means he's not going to be in that current, quote, flagship, unquote, book anymore. But that's what it is. And that also explains uh, why he did show up in X-Men, or why he didn't show up in X-Men 18 that we discussed last week. Because at that point, he was off with Maddie, and I guess he's not coming back. That X-Men book is so hamstrung by everything. It, it just needs a purpose. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 not, it's not leading the, the, the storyline for it. It's anymore. like, let's add Havoc to the team to create some nice Scott and Havoc moments, right? And we got nothing. Except, I guess, they sort of had a fist fight, a brotherly fist fight, and that was essentially it. Yeah. That was it. Okay. Uh, and then our final revelation, supposed to be a big shock, that uh, it turns out that it was Jean who pushed the Quiet Council to approve Madeline's resurrection, which is supposed to be a really touching moment. Okay. 
I'm fine with that. <laughs> I don't have anything to say, but it's supposed to be very, very heartwarming. And I'm yeah. just like, yeah, okay. So from there, the whole gang just heads back off to the concluding issue of the whole dark web event to clean up the fact that there's still demons running around everywhere in New York City. Uh, but now everyone's on the same side, including Madeline, of saying, yeah, let's, let's undo that. I don't really know what's going on with, with Ben Riley. Maybe he's still not so happy about it. If there's any important X revelations in that last issue, I'll be sure to let everybody know, but I kind of doubt it. <clears throat> okay. So that is Dark Web. And now on to what we're really all here for. Immortal X-Men number 10, written by our man Kieran Gillen, art by Lucas Warnock, colors by David Curiel, letters by Clayton Cowles, and designed by Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. I noticed that sometimes it's listed with an and, sometimes it says with, I don't know why, but I just happened to notice that this week. Uh, but this is definitely Tom Muller and Jay Bowen, and this has a very striking cover by Mark Brooks of uh, Professor X, surrounded by really horrible and I mean that in a good way, looking flames with his cerebral helmet cracked, and you can see one eye peeking out, and he's having a rough time. It doesn't exactly match up with anything happening in this issue. Maybe you could refer to what happened at the end of the last issue when he kind of got, you know, killed off, but it's a really cool-looking cover. It's very cool. Yeah, I actually think that uh, this is maybe the highlight of the art in the issue. I think the art is all really good, but I think that's a, a, a nice cover. So, yeah. So what an issue. Huge revelations as we head into Sins of Sinister starting next week. And we're not going to bury the lead here. We're not going to wait to tell you what happened on the last page. I hope you've all read it already. If not, this is definitely a book to read. If you care about anything going on in the entire Krokoan era, go read the issue and I'll come back. Okay. So the big thing that happens is that Mr. Sinister has managed to somehow subvert the resurrection process, inserting himself more or less literally, into the whole thing. And he's corrupted some unknown number of resurrected mutants, including Charles Xavier himself, who appears to be maybe a, a sinister chimera, part sinister, part Professor X. We're not exactly sure, but something big has happened. We've seen in other older sinister stories, you know, societies of people with the sinister diamond on their forehead, and they just kind of all seem to be drones of his working towards his goals. So mm -hmm. it's not good. I mean, I guess you kind of figured that out, right? <laughs> Nobody <laughs> wants the red diamond on their forehead. But uh, my sense is, yeah, this is either sinister in Charles's body or, you know, short of that, just yeah, to completely we don't know exactly what's set up. up it's kind of fun because it leaves all this room for speculation until at least until next week when Sinister starts. So, I, one extra reason I like it is that way, way back, back in House and Powers, I noticed that Professor X was never taking that Cerebro helmet off, right? He was always wearing it. And I was convinced that that was a thing that I noticed that, oh, this is going to be some big revelation. He's going to take the helmet off and we're going to see he's not who we think he is. And my big stupid theory was that he was going to take the helmet off and it was going to be the maker, right? Who was the evil Reed Richards. Just because the way he was drawn looked kind of like the maker. Like that was the Reed Richards from the Ultimate Universe. That was my theory. Dead wrong, 100% wrong. But we finally get a reveal where Professor X takes his helmet off and we go, ooh, we're not, he wasn't who he thought he was. So I, I, I felt a little vindicated that somebody else at least saw the dramatic potential of the, of that moment. Yeah, it's an interesting thought. If we just go into that line of, of thinking, it's like, when did he kind of, manifests the diamond and because i think we've seen him without the helmet a few other times but 
it's been very infrequent and there have been many times when you're like why is he without the helmet or with the helmet in this situation mm-hmm. yeah but, and as, as we go through the action of this issue i'm sure we'll find moments to say oh maybe maybe here maybe here so yeah again not entirely clear but in a fun way and it doesn't necessarily matter right because it's like xavier can sort of mind whammy anyone right so he could have this diamond you know even as of the founding of Krakoa, if you wanted to go that far back. And we don't exactly, it's not like the diamond is some part of Mr. Sinister that has to be there all the time, like it's some manifestation of his power. It's just a marker for, basically, for readers. Okay, so before we get into the nitty-gritty, let's let's think back at those immortal Sinister secrets from issue one of this title. Remember those? We had a whole list numbered one through 12, and then a 13+. Plus. And it became clear over time that each numbered secret corresponded with a numbered issue. For instance, number nine for last issue read, quote, look on the bright side. The council chamber being white means it's easy to see where you have to mop up the bloodstains. And of course, there was plenty of bloodstains because Mr. Sinister killed a bunch of the quiet council members. Now, number 10 for this issue reads, quote, finally, someone who actually deserves it gets thrown in the pit. Good riddance. And now we'll certainly be talking about that later because there's various ways to read that as well. And just looking forward, while we're here, number 11 reads simply, oh no, and that's it. So, hmm, that's pretty cool. Okay, so just to remind people where we were in number nine. Like we said, that uh, Mr. Sinister killed off a bunch of quiet council members. He took a bunch of time loops to do this because he has his, quote, Moira engine running, where he creates these basically video game save points that allow him to go back to that point a maximum of 10 times. Uh, before he asked them to go back to a previous save point. They, they kind of get worn out, which is fine. And his goal here was to get Hope, well, his original goal had been to get the Moira engine running and to get Hope onto the council. He calls that stage one of some plan that we don't know about. Well, stage one completes. And now to get to stage two, we know he had to murder Hope. That was the number one overriding goal. And he was hoping to also get a few other top council members, we know, Charles, Destiny, Emma, and Storm were all very high on his hit list. And through a whole bunch of silliness, eventually he succeeded killing in order Charles, then Emma, then Exodus, and after he killed Exodus, he could kill off Hope. Now, as far as everyone else is concerned, this is Sinister's one and only attack on the council, right? They don't know about all the other attempts. Uh, They know about this one. It was successful and he got away. Now, Hope was always, again, his primary target. If he didn't kill Hope, it was a failure gotta start over. And in the earliest part of Judgment Day, also I'm sure not coincidentally written by our man Kieran Gillen, Hope was also the primary target of Druig and his faction of Eternals. Remember that part? They sent, uh, was it Jack of Knives? Was that the guy they sent after after her? Okay. Uh, you're still there, right? I know. I'm, I'm drawing on a bit. Okay. Uh, I'll move. Okay. <clears throat> Edit this out, girl. So, so we kept saying at that point, you know, Ruben and I kept saying, you know, it doesn't really seem like Hope is as much of a key as Druid thinks she is, right? There's there's backups, there's substitutes. But I, again, this is coming back with Hope being like the key of all keys to this whole resurrection thing. So that's kind of interesting. All right. Now, as always, I like to take these books apart and put them in a different order for discussion for some reason that, that, that makes me happy. So this time, first we're going to talk about the narration. Uh, and it's, narration's a tricky thing, right? Sometimes Jim and often I will complain about there being too much narration in a book. I know I don't like the way narration's used in the current X-Men title. It feels very portentous. He has this 
the omniscient third person narrator just kind of droning on. But I, I like it more usually when it's an actual character doing the narrating from like inside the book. Cause then you can actually build out that, that person's character, what they think, what they feel, things they might not tell other people. It's like a Shakespearean soliloquy, right? They might lie to everybody else, but in their soliloquy, in their narration, we can assume they're telling the truth. And in every issue of Immortal X-Men, we get another character doing this narration. And, and frankly, it's been kind of up and down, all right? We've had some issues where it's been great, and we've had other issues like last time we had, uh, who did we have do it last? It was Kitty, who was the narrator last time, right? And it, it didn't really add a whole lot to the book, but it's like, it felt like, well, Gillen, I'm doing this shtick. I'm going to keep doing this shtick. But for this one, it really works. And uh, if you happen to read Kieran Gillen's uh, newsletter, he mentions that he had sections of this narration like in his notebook from way, way back. Like when he was starting this whole series, he had this already written in part. So this is clearly something he's building up. I, I really appreciate this narration for this character in particular because um, – you know, the, the Charles Xavier character was the sort of unassailable hero when it, you know, when they first kind of envisioned the X-Men, he was just sort of, you know, the perfect teacher. And then maybe in the eighties and nineties, people really gl- glommed onto this idea of like, well, he's not perfect. He's actually kind of a bad guy. And it's almost become a character at this point of like, well, he's just a jerk. Right. And this adds more character to that, right? Like he basically comes out and says like, well, I come across as a jerk that's by design, right? Like I'm trying to make sure that people don't um, assume that I'm harmless. Yeah, he's he's justifying himself, which we don't necessarily have to agree with, but at, at least we see the way he sees himself. It's, uh, it's, it's an overboard to compare it to Richard III. Yes, yes it is. But, you know, as far as comic book stuff, it's as Richard III as comic books can get. And I like his perspective. It's It's like... He's headed in the right. It's sort of the like, you know, I do bad things because somebody has to do bad things, which is maybe a cliche, but in this narration, it works for me. Where it's yeah, like, it's, it's similar to Beat's uh, justification of himself, but not as crazy, right? You can you can see where Professor X could still think this, where Beast would go, yeah, Beast, you're you're way over the line. You're too smart to be this stupid. Where Professor X, we can see what he's up to. So uh, he talks about uh, first. He talked about like how cynical he was. He it's not quite a retcon of his whole history, but it kind of adds retroactive context. Is that still a retcon, I guess? Uh, uh, where he talks about when he formed his teams, he was more cynical than it might have seemed on the surface, right? He says uh, that he chose like Hank for a scientific genius, Gene and Bobby for their power, Scott for his leadership, and Warren for his money. Like That's why he put together the original five. Not because, oh, these were the first five who popped up in Cerebro. These were the ones he could choose to do what he wanted to do, which is hmm, interesting. I mean, I definitely like this because there's been a lot of conversations lately about, you know, the the core X-Men, the original X-Men being very, you know, human assuming, <laughs> you know, they, they, they're basically models that have these powers that they can display or not display short of Beast now that he's like Bluford, right? And so... You know, if you've got mutants, which the the range of them and their abilities and the way they look is all over the place, right? Like, why would you just pick this group as the group, you know, to be the champions of all mutants, right? They don't, they sort of don't need the X Men <laughs> for their own livelihood, right? And if his whole goal was to educate and help the you know people most in need, 
it didn't exactly make sense that these would be the five that you pick. So now we hear like, well, no, that wasn't really the reason the school yeah, he was had formed. His goal all the time. He even talks about how like the the next group, the uh, the giant size and forward kind of group where they came from. And like, for instance, a, a, a trained circus acrobat, a goddess, an ex-Interpol agent. Well, I guess Banshee was an Interpol agent, right? Is that who that's referring to? And then, of course, you know, the Wolverine, who's the big killer, and how they were all just chosen because he had a thing he wanted to do, and they were like the tools he could use to accomplish it. He also really emphasizes how dangerous mutants are. Like, he says, yeah, sure, we're, the, we're a persecuted minority. There's a lot of persecuted minorities out there, but... We're different. Mutants actually are super dangerous. We could, you know, destroy the world. And really, the team of X-Men is its job. Yeah, yeah, sure, they might help out in other circumstances, but its main existence is to protect the world from other mutants, which is, I, I think that's, that's smart because, sure, I mean, subtext can be put in here for any reason, anytime you want to compare them to other groups. That can be done well, it can be done poorly, but it, it makes sense at least. But it's good to put right there on the page, yeah, we, we know there's a difference. Most, you know, pick your persecuted minority, they can't use their minds to blow up the world. And I really like that bit also. Um, and I think, you look at X-Men Dark Web, right? You have... I have to, okay. You know, the, <laughs> well, you're the one reading it. What I do for my listeners. Uh, you have the, the Madeline and Jean people basically just griping about you know, parental issues and she's unleashed demons on New York, right? It sort of demonstrates his point perfectly that these people, when they have like very normal, basic problems, they kind of put, you know, cities and worlds at risk. Whereas like, you know, a regular person would not have that issue. Maybe they'd have a nasty custody battle in court or something. That right? could be a, a, a fun project for someone who has a lot of time and is really bored. Like go through all the X-Men issues and in what percentage of them is the main villain an actual mutant versus what percentage of them are they, you know, whatever else, whether, you know, sentinels or plain old human bad guys or some non-mutant superpower. It's going to be, it's going to be a lot of mutant bad guys. It's just the most fun. Okay. Now, speaking of dangerous, Professor X says that he, Charles Xavier, is probably the most dangerous mutant out there. He says that if he and Magneto had had each other's powers way back at the beginning when they were opposing each other, then, quote, there would be no humans left alive today, right? If if someone with Magneto's background and personality had the abilities that Charles has, he'd just kill all humans. Uh, Charles says that if he wanted to, he could use Cerebro to find all non-mutants. You know, it would take him a couple years to go, go through them and find all these people and give each of them a psychic command know, just to kill themselves. Poof, problem solved. So mutants run the world. Uh, and, and that's theoretical, but Charles admits to having done something kind of similar. He, he makes it so there will never, ever, in the Marvel Universe, be a nuclear war. You want to explain how he did that? <laughs> just put a command in their minds, like all of humanity, right? Or not all of humanity, but the people that have access to arming and Launching nuclear weapons. Yeah, that I think basically, it's like a two-level thing. In the minds of all the world leaders of nuclear nations, presumably, to prevent them from issuing command, and then another level in the minds of those people, like the turn-your-keys-sir people from War Games, if you've seen that movie, the people would actually be firing the missiles as like a second safety. They wouldn't be able to push the button, which is really fascinating to think about. Because, sure, that makes sense that Charles would do that, and it's also really demonstrating the evil he could do. I mean, if we think 
he's gone bad. And a lot of people who don't like the current Krakoan era talk about how the X-Men have become villains and they want to, you know, they want to come back, back when they're heroes again. This really makes that hero villain line more complicated and more interesting. It's, it's not the, the trite anti-hero thing we see too much. It's actually what, what would someone with all this power have to think about, have to contend with to do or to not do? Well, it's interesting too, because it's like, it's, takes away autonomy, right? As much as I don't want a nuclear war, do I like the idea that somebody just takes that away from me, right? So it's a complex thought. I mean, there's certainly people, I mean, again, if, if we think of the real world, if we could, you know, we're not going to mention your name, but think about what world leaders we'd like to have psychic blocks in so they couldn't do certain things, I think we'd all be able to put together a list pretty quickly. There'd be some overlap, some non-overlap, but you know, there's some people we'd want to stop from doing some things, but just the power to do that Drawing that line from going from, yeah, that's a good thing to, oh, no, that's too far, that's that's hard to define in an objective kind of way. So, yeah, Charles knows he's dangerous. Uh, he wants credit for being dangerous, right? You know, recognize how bad I could be. But he also wants credit for not having done all those bad stuff that he could have done. Uh, in fact, he calls himself a martyr for suffering all the persecutions he has and not having just lashed out and done all those Bad, 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 bad things. Yeah, that's an interesting thought, right? He, sure. He basically, anything that has bad happened to him, he kind of just let happen to him. It's I all mean, by we choice. You could go through the litany of, of horrible things that happened to him personally, or to mutants in general, or to particular mutants he loves, and at no time did he actually murder all humans. So <laughs> here's here's a ribbon, I guess. Yes. Uh, he says, imagine what a lesser man might have done in his place. He says, quote, this would be a disaster neither species, human or mutants, meaning, could survive. And that final quotation about what a disaster it would be for an evil man to have this Charles Xavier power is on the page of the issue where we reveal that Charles Xavier is maybe controlled by Mr. Sinister. And he also talks about how um, there's different levels of villains that are mutants, right? There's the People that have powers that are just awful, but they're not necessarily bad people. Um, you know, the legions and the proteuses. And then there are people that just actually are sociopaths like Mr. Sinister, right? So it almost, in a way, you know, highlights how much of a threat Sinister is because, you know, he chooses to do the bad things that he does. It's not that he just is, you know, naturally inclined to do that stuff. He also draws another connection, or reminds readers of a connection he's had with Mr. Sinister, where Sinister was connected in one of the retcons to Charles Xavier's own like birth and upbringing, right? Yes, yeah. So if you go back and read X-Men Legacy uh, 211 through 213, there's a story by Mike Carey about um, how Sinister was actually at the, uh, what is it, Los, Los Alamos space or something like that? Or Almogoro, yeah, that's the one. Um, where uh, also you had Mystique and Charles's father, and uh, which is Brian Xavier, and um, gosh, the Marco Kane, his father, the Canes. So basically, a bunch of interesting ex people were all at this base, and uh, Essex was basically a psychologist there who was kind of experimenting on uh, Kane and Xavier. And we saw this error a couple issues ago in Immortal, in the issue where we had the whole Sherlock Holmes thing with Destiny and Mystique back in that era, where we, we saw some of that Mr. Sinister early life. So 
Gillen's been making references to things along the way that weren't just, oh, here's some cool X-Men history, some texture. It really is all coming together now in this this sinisterized Xavier. So it, I, I love these kind of issues that make you reconsider and recontextualize all this stuff we recently read. We can, we can tell that Gillen had a complete plan from the very beginning. If nothing else, all those uh, secrets of Sinister or immortal Sinister secrets in issue number one, you know, really proves that he had a plan and he wants us all to know, hey, I had a plan the whole time. Yeah, and I want to call it one other thing about Sinister Secrets. So even before the Sinister Secrets that were in Immortal X-Men, I think in the, I think it might be Hoxpox, but in any event, there, there is a data page where there was kind of, you know, Red Diamond, Sinister Secrets, and one of them reads, which brainwashed mutant sinister was replaced long before a certain bald somebody knew and had or and has been on the game for almost as long as the game was being played. I'm like, just basically saying that, is it Charles? Is that a reference to Charles that he was replaced super, super early? Well, if I don't know, or is it worse? Charles, he the, said before the, bald, the bald guy, yeah, because yeah, Charles is the bald guy who was in, he say, pulled the wool over his eyes. So I think that must be referring to somebody not Charles, but who knows? In, in any event, it's very interesting, right? So very interesting. So yeah, so all that just just from the narration here. So that was the narration, and again, plenty to be interested in just in those words. So after after you read the issue all the way through, I think it's worthwhile to go back and and just read that narration stuff and see. The story it tells. But now we're going to go back to the beginning of the issue and talk about, hey, it's a comic book. Some stuff is actually happening on panel. And that's pretty cool too. So in the first scene, we're in Mr. Sinister's lab. This is after his whole massacre and escape. And he's he's pretty pleased with himself. The plan didn't go perfectly. We he makes a, a real point of mentioning that, yeah, ideally Storm would have died too. But he says he can quote, handle it. And we'll see if that turns out to be foreshadowing. That that could be a thing, right? It could be superpower storm, kind of perfect all the time, never died. She may be the one to, at the end of Sins of Sinister, foil his plan. Because we're pretty sure his plan's going to get foiled at some point, right? So I think that's probably the, if there are Vegas odds on who's going to stop him, Storm's number one. Yeah, I would say what I think this is all alluding to is that Sense of Sinister is not an alt timeline, which I really thought it was going to be. And I think things like Storm and the Brotherhood of Mutants is actually in continuity X-Men Red, like, sub-story, which is pretty wild to me. I, I really did think that this was going to be, you know, some pocket universe that That's was never true. referenced again. I don't again. see that happening. It, it may, in retrospect, be a timeline that then gets erased because in the real timeline that we then go back and change it because we know that because of all the Moira engine that can happen. So maybe he wins, but then he has to go back. Who knows? We're, we're, we haven't even started the event yet, but yeah, it, it certainly looks like that at least from the perspective of now, all this crazy sinister world stuff is going to happen in what we consider the real regular timeline. So he walks off saying that he, quote, really could do without being trapped helplessly in the pit forever, which, now that part is definitely foreshadowing. Uh, and again, exactly what it means and who's in the pit could be complicated. And this is pretty much the last we see from Sinister's point of view in this whole issue. We So we see him doing this little talk to himself, and then he goes off to do some things, but everything else we really see from... The external perspective from the other mutants going in after him. We, we peek at him a little bit when he's pushing some buttons, but from here on out, we don't know what's going on in Mr. Sinister's head, and we're we're left to speculate. And that's clearly on purpose. 
So we join the rest of the Quiet Council, the, the living members of the Quiet Council, back in the council chambers, which, yes, are very, very red at this point because he killed off those four members. Uh, X-Force is here investigating. Makes sense. Cable is here, presumably because of his kind of father-daughter relationship with Hope. And we see her very specifically being carried off by Cable and kind of presented to a crowd of very sad mutants. Uh, and uh, I, I do have to give a little bit of a quibble to the art here. Just a, a little thing I noticed. Lucas Warnock's done a fine job here, but he, he takes kind of a shortcut in this crowd scene. Makes sense. He doesn't just draw little squiggles in the background or stick figures for the crowd. He draws actual figures, but he does a copy-paste thing to mirror the crowd being on the left and on the right, which could have worked fine if we didn't see Glob on both sides of the crowd. I didn't notice it the first time, but I was like, you're going somewhere with this. And then I was like, oh, why are there two colored globs? <laughs> two glob. We've got a pink glob. We've got a, a blue glob. So the color is David yeah. Curiel. Try to make it a little bit. And, and I, I, I actually looked. Is there another another glob out there who is just a different color? I don't think yeah. so. I think this is just, oh, well, uh, it's kind of a funny thing to notice. Uh, and yeah. it is. He also used that same crowd two panels later. Again, mirrored left to right. So, you know, yeah. you got to take some shortcuts to get the job done. But that was a little, hey, I, I saw the thing you did. And yeah, the crowd is very, very sad. And it's very specifically because of Hope. I mean, sure, Professor X is dead. Some other people are dead. But they die all the time. Hope being dead is a whole new level of potentially very bad. Yes. In theory, it cuts off the uh, resurrection protocol. And certainly, every character written by Kieran Gillen thinks that... Uh, Hope is the key to everything. I don't know if every other writer thinks that, but yeah. that's been Kieran Gillen consistently saying she is the key. It works from like an early 2000s point of view also, when she was like the you know the first mutant born after the M-Day event and when they thought there would be no more mutants. Yeah, that's an error I haven't done a whole lot of reading in. So that just that that resonance, that emotion, I don't it doesn't work on me so much just because I haven't I haven't read those stories, but I can definitely see where that is how the story is being told, and that, that works through the whole story. So it's very consistent. Makes sense. So now we get a data page. It's called Resurrection Redundancy. It's a memo from Beast, and it's top secret. Although it's, it's not signed Beast. It's signed Dr. Henry McCoy. And we haven't seen him use that name hardly at all lately. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's just a Ben Percy versus Kieran Gillen thing, or if it's emphasizing his whole you know doctor scientific side. I thought it was notable. It's an inconsistency. I mean, we, we had that whole other data page that was like, you know, I don't recognize human institutions like doctorates and things like that. I'm like, oh, that was so bad. <laughs> that's that's true. Maybe this is an older document. We don't have a date on it. Yeah, I guess that's, All this, yeah. Nothing here is super up to date. It doesn't rely mm. on any recent continuity. So maybe this has just been around since the beginning of Krakoa before yeah. Hank went this far down that path. Yeah. That, that's my uh, my no prize attempt. So this is very much a redo of a page we saw in House of X number five, I think. One of those, right after they let on the whole resurrection thing, after that, that, that cat out the bag. And we see that there are three pieces needed for each resurrection. You need the mind, you need the genetic base, you need the host. Which, okay, the whole situation really assumes a fairly extreme form of Cartesian dualism, but that's for my Weird Dose of Philosophy podcast. That's a whole other thing. Uh, we're just going to take it as given that, yeah, okay, that's the way resurrection works. Mind, body, or separate. So 
the mind. This one, Beast says, is somehow the least difficult. Seems like it would be complicated, but not in this world. Uh, they have Cerebro. They have multiple backups of Cerebro. They have multiple psychics who have enough psychic oomph to do the put the mind in the body job. So Gillen Least is saying, don't worry about this one. The other two are the more complicated one. Number two is the genetic base. And this is why they brought Mr. Sinister in to begin with. Yep. That's why they need him, because he has this creepy hobby of collecting DNA samples going way back. Uh, Beast notes that, hey, every time we resurrect a mutant, the rest of us are going to keep another copy of that mutant's DNA, meaning that eventually, this is Beast's quote, we will no longer need Sinister's database, and Sinister will no longer have a hold on us. That's very interesting. I'm not sure it's true, but it's interesting, <laughs> right? Because how many how many dead mutants are there who have not been brought back? Yeah. Millions. Yeah. I'd say they've maybe resurrected 2% of the population at this some, point. Some small number. So even yeah. if theoretically they might eventually not need Sinister's database, that eventually is a long way off. But for the purpose of that story, it's Gillen doing a cool thing, just reminding us that these, this accord between Sinister and the rest of the mutants is on one level temporary and kind of fractious. They don't really like each other. They need Mr. Sinister for his database, and they're looking for ways to get rid of him, and Sinister knows that they're looking for ways to get rid of him. Okay, so that's genetic base. Third is the host. And you might think this is the easiest, right? I mean, a body is a complicated thing, but compared to genes and minds, it's just like a fleshy machine. But Beast says this is the true weak point. This is where the five are needed to grow the eggs, mature them into bodies, all that thing. The five are the weak link, and the weak link of the weak link is hope. Again, emphasizing hope's centrality and everything. He says that sync or mimic, we'll talk about them in a minute, should be able to fill in for most of the five, but maybe not for hope. Hope is a different kind of mutant, right? She has this kind of vague, ineffable power amplification make all the mutants be better at being mutants kind of power? Is there a better way of explaining that, or maybe kind of not really? No, I think that's that's essentially it. I, I also thought, I thought she sort of, um, yeah, never mind. I think you probably did it <laughs> better than my fumbling is going to accomplish. It's vague on purpose, is the I think the key. Uh, so, Beast is not sure if Hope's part of the mutant circuit is replaceable at all. And you almost wonder why Beast doesn't say, hey, let's Let's make a couple hopes and put them on ice somewhere. That's what that's what current day Beast would say. Maybe that's another clue that maybe this is written by, you know, beginning of a Krakoa Beast. And just, just as an aside, did you notice what's not mentioned on this page at all? The waiting room. Remember that thing? That idea that we have this whole extra copy of all the minds of mind souls, I don't know what part we actually copy, of all the mutants who weren't in, in Cerebro. So again, maybe this is an early document, or maybe Gillen, like a lot of us, would like to kind of forget about the that whole <laughs> trial of Magneto, waiting room, Scarlet Witch nonsense. I don't think they're going to be able to because they're going to have to get Magneto back at some point, right? Uh, I guess so. I, I like, I mean, it. this does work for me. This is an earlier data page, right? Before he was Call Me Beast. Yeah, the, the more I talk through that, the more I like that little idea that this is just an, an older document. But it's presented now to really remind us of some salient things that are going to be super, super important. Okay, so now back to action. Uh, it's, it's resurrection time, or at least time to try the resurrection. And for the first time, the five have to try to do a resurrection without 
capital H Hope. So the first mutant they ask to stand in for her is Mimic. Oh, Mimic. Mimic they try for us. He's he's the guy with the big M on his chest and the angel type wings. Oh, got it. Okay. Now Mimic is kind of a crazy character. Uh I guess I just didn't know who that was. I actually thought it was Angel, but I guess he's not blonde. So yeah, fill me in on this. This I is need, Mimic. He's Calvin Rankin, created way, way back in nineteen sixty six by good old Stan and Jack for X Men number nineteen. And, and hey, I know that our buddy Chris over on uh, the Chris and Reggie podcast feed, he has a whole episode about this, so you can go look up that there for the, the full story. But Calvin Rankin grew up in Passaic, New Jersey, just one town over from where I grew up. Uh, and Mimic's claim to fame is that he was the first next member of the X-Men after the original five. He was like, you know, uh, the, the Billy Shields of of the X-Men. He was the next one. Uh, he was only a member for like three issues. He's been a hero. He's been a villain. He's been Mimic. He's been the Mimic. Sometimes they say he's a mutant. Sometimes they say, no, no, he's a mutate. He got exposed to chemicals. Uh, it's gone back and forth a couple of times. But in House of X number five, in that very data page that this data page was based on, they mentioned that Mimic or Sync might be someone who can serve as a backup for the five. So at least based on House of X number five, we're calling him a mutant. And I guess that's what we've got to go with. And also, by the way, he died in the extermination miniseries. You know the extermination miniseries? That's the one after Bendis brought those time-displaced versions of the original five, and we had two copies. Remember that? Well, uh, we had to undo Bendis's plot point. Mm, that happens a lot. And uh, <laughs> so, yeah, we had to have this miniseries called Extermination, and the big deal there was to send the original five back from when they came. And that in that same issue, or that the I think the last issue of that miniseries, they killed off uh, Calvin Rankin. He was being used to grow wings for Angel, which I think is why we see him with wings here, because he can he can copy powers. Okay, so after all that, Calvin, you haven't been on panel since uh, extermination back in the just immediately post-Bendis days. Your time to shine, buddy. Here we go. Show us what you got. And what does Calvin do? Yeah, Calvin whooshes out big time. Oh, yeah. no. His quote is, I can't do it. It's too horrible and too much pressure. Yeah. Oh, well. Thanks, oh, yeah. Calvin. It took me way longer to explain Calvin Rankin <laughs> than he actually lasts in the book. But hey, it's it's my idea of a good time. Hope other people liked it, too. Uh, so now who steps up? I like the big M on his shirt, too. What a jerk. <laughs> that is that is his traditional look. And again, he hasn't shirt. been on panel all that often. So <laughs> that's what we go with. All right. And yeah, next up is Sync. Uh, and I don't know that we've seen Sync copy powers from a corpse before. This is new. I mean, we know his powers have ramped up from where they used to be. He can copy powers of even non-mutants. We don't know exactly how far that goes. Can he take the place of hope? Can he be hope for hope from a dead hope? And yep, short answer, yes. Works fine. As far as we can tell, hope is resurrected. Yay. A cheer goes up from the crowd. Hope has returned. That's both capital H and lowercase h. Uh, she was the key. She's always been the key. And yeah, then we quickly see the other three quiet council members res resurrected. Exodus, Xavier, and Emma. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure here if this is still Sync doing Hope's job or if Hope is put right back to work. It's it's not really made clear on panel. I'm guessing that it is still Sync doing things because Hope is still figuring out, you know, 
when I wake up first thing in the morning, I don't want to go right to work either. Yep. So I think this is probably still sinking. That might or might not be important because something, something is happening here in this resurrection process that we find out later is not quite right. Yeah. So exactly My theory, where this... Go ahead. So I just came up with this, and this is going to oh, be totally like wrong. Hot but off the presses. Yes, hot off the press. I think that Hope actually has been replaced and by Sinister. And then, so the one that died, I think, was already in on it. And then Sink copied those powers and just created, you know, further corruption. Oh, like he imported that, that Sinisterness into himself yep. when he copied. Because... Yep. This sink is the same sink who's been alive the whole time. I don't think sink has died. He, he lived an awful yeah. long, 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 long time yep. in the vault, but I don't know that he's died in the Krakoan era. No, I don't think he has. Okay. And, and we're all, we do all this detective work. Who died when is going to be a huge thing for the next week yeah. because exactly when the sinister infection comes in, who gets it? We don't know. Could be everybody, could be just a few people. Okay. So now we've got. For the rest of the issue, it's, it's almost a silent issue going forward. You yeah. still have the Professor X narration going on. We've talked about that. There's a couple stray word bubbles just to make it clear what's happening, but 99% of the story is coming through the art. Well, and, let's talk about this too, this other oh, thing. Yeah. So if Charles has a diamond on his head, right? He's one of the ones that was resurrected. We see Charles, Exodus, and um, Emma. Emma. So if Charles is, is back as a Sinister clone, shouldn't they also be Sinister clones too? You'd think that's at least a possibility. And again, we don't see diamonds on their heads here, but we don't know when and how the diamond actually happens. Manifest. Maybe Sinister yeah. just likes to stick a thing to his forehead. And <laughs> it could, you know, it, we don't know that it's even biological. Yeah. We know that for readers, it's a sign, oh, that's Mr. Sinister. Yeah. But we don't know what it is. So again, we're going to speculate what's happening to whom and, and, we just don't know, which is kind of fun. But yeah, but from now on, I just want to give uh, Lucas Warnock some credit because I, I kind of poked him a little bit for the crowd scene earlier, which is a very, very minor thing. But to tell the rest of the story through the art and have it be so clear what's happening is a, a real achievement. So that's that's fantastic. And yeah. he's been the artist for, I think, all but two or three of the issues in this run. So he really is part of what makes Immortal X-Men, Immortal X-Men, which I love to have a signature look to a book to go along with a signature writer. So yeah. huge credit to, to Warnock for that. Okay, so we've got the band back together. Uh, they're all alive, and everybody wants to be a part of this posse to go around at Mr. Sinister. No one wants to get left out. We get the whole Quiet Council, at least minus the four who were just resurrected, although they're going to show up again in a couple pages. Hang on. We've got... The X-Men, you know, all, all the X-Men, including we've got both uh, Laura Wolverines, the old one and the young one. We've got Angel, we've got Cable, and we've got Beast coming along on this mission. All of them. I, you could say, why do they need to have so many of them? Maybe you'd want to have some of these Quiet Council members held back, but here they go. And they are met by waves of mutant-powered, sinisterized defenses and this is, I think this is really just for fun. Oh, yeah. I love these defenses. Uh, you, you enjoyed these too, I presume? I did, yeah. And I think that the on-panel kind of time was about right, right? You don't need six pages of the iBoy Cyclops Chimera, but it's a cool idea, right? Yeah, we, we don't need, we don't need this to be a whole mini-series, an arc to itself. We just need to say, yeah, they're going, they're going to get them. So, and of course, Sinister has these defenses. We have an iBoy Cyclops Chimera. I never know how to say that word. 
And that made me laugh because, of course, that makes perfect sense. You've got a guy who shoots beams out of his eyes, and you've got yeah. another guy with a whole bunch of eyes. eyes. Yep. Mr. Sinister can put those together. And God bless him. I'm so glad he did. It looks disgusting and amazing with just this yeah. horrible monstrosity with beams just shooting everywhere. And yeah. it's a perfect sinister idea. I love it. I never want to see it again, but I'm so glad it's here. Yeah, exactly. It's like perfect, but one and done is all you really need for that. Mm. It's it's like a joke that goes on for just the right length, uh, <laughs> which someday I'll learn to do that, but probably no time soon. Uh, the next thing we see, more of those flying eye things. Those always look great, just the Cyclops eye flying around causing trouble. Yep. Uh, we see Wolverines with, I don't think this is merged with anybody else. It's just kind of a even more mindless than the, the currently in Wolverine, mindless Wolverine. Plus, you've got claws just poking out of everywhere. It's really nasty and gross, which, again, never want to see again, but it makes sense <laughs> that you would do this. Yep. We have a group of Proteuses, and I don't know exactly what they do, but they've got to be really badass, right? I mean, there's yep. a whole horde of evil, mindless, sinisterized reality warpers. That's got to be tough to deal with. Yep. But we don't see a whole... We don't really see how they're dealt with. They just... You know, they do get dealt with. Yep. And we also have these decoy brains, which are out there just to make it harder for psychics like Jean Grey to figure out where, where is. the real sinister is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. Great stuff. Uh, and again, this is just like two pages worth on panel. And this whole time we see that sinister is charging something called Shaw batteries. And Sebastian Shaw's power being to absorb kinetic energy, store it, and use that to enhance his own strength. Uh, Sinister seems to be using this to power his getaway craft. And I think maybe he's harvesting this energy from the people attacking his creatures. Yeah. I think it's not, not exactly clear, but I think that's what, what's going on. All we know is it's, it's climbing up 94%, 98%. And eventually he takes off in a really cool looking craft. And you should enjoy the picture of the craft we get. And it is, he has this whole, you know, crew of his Mr. Sinister, you know, goons fueling it up. <clears throat> so take a good look at the craft because it doesn't last long. <laughs> at this point, those four just resurrected council members who may or may not be controlled by Sinister, they show up and they're the ones who use their psychic powers to blow that craft in half and send it crashing to the ground. This makes me think of Dr. Robotnik. It's like, I think I've seen this in a video game, right? <laughs> the the big bad boss and his, you know, personal themed escape vehicle. Yeah. And he's just about to get away, but mm -hmm. they stop him. We think they stop him. This is another point where it's just Mr. Sinister and the four people who were just resurrected. So this is another place where switcheroo could be happening. Yeah. Oh, uh, interesting. Yeah. Is this the real Sinister? Does it really, is it meaningful to say the real Sinister at this point, even back in Hellions? Yeah. We saw that we could have multiple sinisters both claiming to be the real sinister. So Ooh. you know what's happening like a here? Distributed personality. What's happening here? I'm telling you what's happening here. They're swapping bodies, Charles and Sinister. You, oh, you think this is where that swap happens? Yeah, That's all these a real all possibility these too. Yeah, yeah, plenty of psychic power to do that. Because then you see the crash, the the ship crashes right, and then some sinister comes out right, and he's like shocked. He's looking at them. He's like, "What's going on?" Yeah, see, and then when you turn the page. You see, uh, Mr. Sinister with his, you know, backup Sinister goons looking at Professor X and yelling fire. And in this exact moment, we get the narration saying, I have a mirror. I looked in it. 
which makes great sense in the story. If you just read the narration, it makes sense in the flow of the narration. But here it's matching up a picture of Charles Xavier saying, I have a mirror. And we know at the end of this issue, Charles Xavier looks in the mirror and sees the sinister diamond on his forehead. So uh, that's another really cool potential connection. And again, this part being so silent, except for Mr. Sinister yelling fire, we don't know what anyone's thinking. We're not inside the plans. We're left to speculate and try to figure it out, which is, is very cool. Okay, so they've captured Mr. Sinister, maybe, and now we get to see his trial. And this part is 100% silent. We don't need to see what anyone's saying. We don't We don't get any dialogue. We, we know what they'd be saying, right? Mm-hmm. He's Mr. Sinister. He just killed the Quiet Council. He's been captured. He's escorted by Cable, uh, jeered at by the crowd, taken in front of the Quiet Council, found guilty, and sentenced to the pit in like a page and a half. Yep. We see him dragged down by vines, terrified and screaming. Again, we see someone who looks like Mr. Sinister dragged into the pit. Who exactly it is, how much he's faking, because we know he was thinking about the pit at the beginning of this issue. We know that in the Sinister Secrets, he talked about someone who really deserves it being sent to the pit. And is that Mr. Sinister calling himself deserving? Is that him winking and saying someone deserving and he doesn't think it's him? Who who knows? It's, again, so much to speculate on. Okay, so now we get a little bit of dialogue. We get Emma saying that she wishes they could have given him even harsher punishment. And Xavier is saying, oh, no, that would be beneath us, which is a little weird because at that exact moment, Sinister is physically directly beneath them in the pit. Uh, he also says that, uh, you know, this is a wake-up call. We all must be better than we have been. Which, again, people have been saying the, the mutants, the X-Men, have been acting more like villains and heroes. So on the surface, this is Xavier saying, we need to be better. And he says, quote, a useful monster is still a monster. Sinister is gone. Let us make a better, kinder Krakoa. So much to talk about there, right? A useful monster is still a monster. That's him saying, like, almost like him washing his hands of Mr. Sinister yep. again on the surface. Uh, better, kinder Krakoa makes me think of the first George Bush president, a you know, kinder, <laughs> gentler America. I'm old enough to remember that. <clears throat> and and also, Destiny and Mystique at this moment, Destiny takes Mystique by the arm and says, we must leave immediately. We got to get the heck out of here. Yeah, she knows something's up. On the surface, that looks like her taking the useful monster label and thinking, oh, I'm the next useful, we're the next two useful monsters he's going to come after. Yeah. But again, she knows future things that she knows something else. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> Very, so many possibilities. She must. She must. She knows something. How much she knows, how much yeah. this is tangled up because of the many timelines, who knows? We don't get to see anything else between the two of them except we got to go. All right, now it's time for that big reveal scene that I spoiled back at the beginning. Professor X goes back alone to his house on Krakoa, that house actually called the House of X. He looks at himself in the mirror as his narration finishes up. He removes the Cerebro helmet, and that reveals to us readers a, a frankly, very naughty little smile and a red diamond on his forehead. And we've already talked through all the many places where this could have happened, how it could have happened, and the bottom line is, there's a lot of possibilities. We don't know, and maybe we'll find out in Sins of Sinister. Yes. So that's that's a hell of an issue. <laughs> I think we've we've talked a lot of different aspects of this. Any any bits of it we haven't brought up yet that you wanna wanna poke at? 
No, I think that's. I think we hit all the, the key points. Again, so good. One of the one of the best comic books I've read this whole year. Well, I know it's still January. You know what I mean. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, so in quite a while. I mean, I guess what I'll say is what I really like about this beyond just it being a good story is um, it just connected to so many things in the past, which I think I've said before that that always gets me right. You yes tell a story that like enhances old stories. You make it seem you reward the reader right for like having your time and effort into reading these past stories and um yeah it's just really yeah, it, really it, it cool connects in, in a ways. meaningful way it's not like we've talked about some other writers just like to uh our old buddy chris likes to talk about firing up the uh random wiki page and whatever mutant pops up oh you put him in the story just to have a name that exists these are connections that are meaningfully made Connecting to some old stories make them more interesting, and connecting to some of Gillen's own past stories in ways that you really see, oh, there's a structure here that we didn't know about until now, and it enhances those old stories. So even the even the dialogue about like not wanting to go back to Judgment Day that works for me because I one one of my big pet peeves with comics is these like world ending cataclysmic events happen and then. You know, like two issues later, you never, <laughs> you never That's hear true. anything about it, right? Like nobody's like, yeah, wasn't it crazy that the freaking world was destroyed the other day, right? Yeah, like, alien invasions every other week. Yes. Yeah. It drives me nuts that like it doesn't, so at least in this case, I mean, we still have most of the characters just being like, well, that was the thing that happened, but. <laughs> it's like Gillen insisting that his event actually mattered. Yes. It's, yeah. Okay. Fine for me. It works that like Sinister doesn't want to go back, right? Because it reminds you like, yeah, that, there was some stuff that went down and we don't want to repeat that so yeah i'm excited i mean this is pretty wild for me the last thing i'll say about this is you know i'm sure i'm on record at this point being like a sense of sinister i don't need another you know alt timeline story seems like it might not be yeah super low interest right i was probably at like a two out of ten uh, of excitement and hype and now i'm probably at like an eight i'm like yeah mr sinister i need it they've made mr sinister so much more interesting than I ever thought it could be. Yeah. It is kind of silly to put a number on how good a comic book is, but it's what we do here. And at least when I use the number, what I'm really trying to say is how, how strongly would I recommend someone go read this book? Right? Like a seven means, yeah, if you've been reading it, go ahead and pick this one up too. An eight means, oh, this is something you should probably check out, even if it wouldn't always be your thing, where I'm going to give this issue, call it a 9.5 out of 10. If you have any interest in what's going on in Krakoa, you've got to read this book. It makes so many other books better. It makes me think the future is going to be better. It's it's It looks beautiful, and everybody should check it out. I'm going to go on record and say at this point, I kind of like Gillen better than Hickman as a, you know, Ooh, hot take. Like a sort of like setting the path for the future. It, it does feel like many stories are coming out of this or could come out of this. And... I don't know. I, I just think of all the books he's written, right? It, mm-hmm. They've they've led somewhere, right? Like I couldn't say that with with Hawksbox and Hickman stuff. I I really thought Hawksbox was super strong, but so much of everything that he wrote after that was just kind of disconnected. They were they were okay single story. A big idea guy. Yeah, it doesn't always come together. It doesn't always cohere. Yeah. Where Gillen seems to be taking some of the things that Hickman built and some new things and making it focused in a, a very interesting way yeah the, the ideas aren't quite as big but the you know issue to issue story is better and i, I th- i'm gonna say nine five is fine 
probably in the like if you're to say you know 10 years from now this is probably like an eight right just a good story but it's really going to depend on on what uh sins of sinister does right if yeah. sinister <laughs> turns out to be a flop then yeah. this is going to look like a silly number i gave it if it turns yes. out to be a classic yes. then uh, you know we'll look smart yeah but it's it's great i'm it's everything you want. I hate to say, like, this is the X-Men book you got to be reading, but it is, right? <laughs> Not the core title. The core title is kind of like a passable book, but Immortal's where it's at. And then the last thing I'll say is super happy. He, uh, Gillen was on Twitter saying, like, Immortal doesn't end after this because people were speculating that, you know, he just kind of had a story that got us the sense of Sinister. He is going to tell more stories. It's going to come back in number 11 in a few months after Immortal X-Men which is the Sinister Sinister tie-in does its thing. Yep. Okay, so that was a great book. I hope everyone enjoyed reading the book. I hope they got something out of all our blatherings and controlled gushings about the book. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, recommended reading. I'm going to say, number one, what I'm going to do is I'm going to reread Immortal X-Men numbers 1 through 10 because I want to see the story again and now that I know where it goes, at least up to this point. And I'm also going to add on uh, what you mentioned, X-Men Legacy, did you say 211 to 213? Yep, yeah. It's three issues, storyline, gives you the background on the Charles uh, Sinister relationship. Fantastic. So that should keep uh, us all busy. And next week, we have Sins of Sinister number one coming out. So excited. So very excited about that. I hope it lives up to all the excitement I have. Uh, and we also have Sabretooth and the Exiles number three. So we'll be talking about both of those next week, and we, we hope we're still as happy then as we are now. I know. Yeah. I hope so, too. I mean, how how often are you excited about a January event, right? Like At least for me, never. I can't think of. This is not the time when you get the big, exciting events, but maybe. Maybe this time. Maybe. Good. Hope springs eternal. That's uh, <laughs> capital H, lowercase h. Let's pretend I made that pun on purpose. Why not? Yes. Okay. Okay. So, Ruben. What do we say at the end of every Weird Dose of X episode? All of them. Uh, read more X-Men comics. Of course. Bye-bye. You are all weirdos. Weird science is the revolution. Weird science is the revolution.